Chapter Eleven of the Skylark of Space by E. E. Smith and L. E. Garby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Through Space into the Carboniferous. Seaton opened his eyes and gazed about him wonderingly. Only half conscious, bruised, and sore in every part of his body, he could not at first realize what had happened. Instinctively drawing a deep breath, he coughed and choked as the undiluted oxygen filled his lungs, bringing with it a complete understanding of the situation. Knowing from the lack of any apparent motion that the power had been sufficient to pull the car away from that fatal globe, his first thought was for Dorothy, and he tore off his helmet and turned toward her. The force of even that slight movement wafted him gently into the air where he hung suspended several minutes before his struggles enabled him to clutch a post and draw himself down to the floor. A quick glance around informed him that Dorothy, as well as the others, was still unconscious. Making his way rapidly to her, he placed her face downward upon the floor and began artificial respiration. Very soon he was rewarded by the coughing he had longed to hear. He tore off her helmet and clasped her to his breast in an agony of relief, while she sobbed convulsively upon his shoulder. The first ecstasy of their greeting over, Dorothy started guiltily. Oh, Dick, she exclaimed, what about Peggy? You must see how she is. Never mind, answered Crane's voice cheerily. She is coming too nicely. Glancing around quickly, they saw that Crane had already revived the stranger, and that Duquesne was not in sight. Dorothy blushed, the vivid wave of color rising to her glorious hair, and hastily disengaged her arms from around her lover's neck, drawing away from him. Seaton, also blushing, dropped his arms, and Dorothy floated away from him, frantically clutching at a brace just beyond reach. "'Pull me down, Dick!' she called, laughing gaily. Seaton, seizing her instinctively, neglected his own anchorage, and they hung in the air together, while Crane and Margaret, each holding a strap, laughed with unrestrained merriment. "'Tweet, tweet, I'm a canary!' chuckled Seaton. "'Throw us a rope!' "'A dicky bird you mean,' interposed Dorothy. "'I knew that you were a sleight-of-hand expert, Dick.' "'But I did not know that levitation was one of your specialties,' remarked Crane, with mock gravity. "'That is a peculiar pose you are holding now. "'What are you doing, sitting on an imaginary pedestal?' "'I'll be sitting on your neck if you don't get a wiggle on with that rope,' retorted Seaton. But before Crane had time to obey the command, the floating couple had approached close enough to the ceiling so that Seaton, with a slight pressure of his hand against the leather, sent them floating back to the floor within reach of one of the handrails. Seaton made his way to the power plant, lifted in one of the remaining bars, and applied a little power. The Skylark seemed to jump under them, then it seemed as though they were back on earth. Everything had its normal weight once more, as the amount of power applied was just enough to equal the acceleration of gravity. After this fact had been explained, Dorothy turned to Margaret. Now that we are able to act intelligently, the party should be introduced to each other. Peggy, this is Dr. Dick Seaton, and this is Mr. Martin Crane. Boys, this is Miss Margaret Spencer, a dear friend of mine. These are the boys I have told you so much about, Peggy. Dick knows all about atoms and things. 
He found out how to make the Skylark go. Martin, who is quite a wonderful inventor, made the engines and things for it. I may have heard of Mr. Crane, replied Margaret eagerly. My father was an inventor, and I have heard him speak of a man named Crane who invented a lot of instruments for airplanes. He used to say that the Crane instruments revolutionized flying. I wonder if you are that Mr. Crane. That is rather unjustifiably high praise, Miss Spencer, replied Crane, but as I have been guilty of one or two things along that line, I may be the man he meant. Pardon me if I seem to change the subject, put in Seaton, but where's Duquesne? We came to at the same time, and he went into the galley to fix up something to eat. Good for him, exclaimed Dorothy. I'm simply starved to death. I would have been demanding food long ago, but I have so many aches and pains that I didn't realize how hungry I was until you mentioned it. Come on, Peggy. I know where our room is. Let's go powder our noses while these bewhiskered gentlemen reap their beards. Did you bring along any of my clothes, Dick, or did you forget them in the excitement? I didn't think anything about clothes, but Martin did. You'll find your whole wardrobe in your room. I'm with you, Dot, on that eating proposition. I'm hungry enough to eat the jam off the door. After the girls had gone, Seaton and Crane went to their rooms, where they exercised vigorously to restore the circulation to their numbed bodies, shaved, bathed, and returned to the saloon feeling like new men. They found the girls already there, seated at one of the windows. Hail and greeting, cried Dorothy at sight of them. I hardly recognized you without your whiskers. Do hurry over here and look out this perfectly wonderful window. Did you ever in your born days see anything like this sight? Now that I'm not scared pea-green, I can enjoy it thoroughly. The two men joined the girls and peered out into space through the window, which was completely invisible, so clear was the glass. As the four heads bent so close together, an awed silence fell upon the little group, for the blackness of the interstellar void was not the dark of an earthly night, but the absolute black of the absence of all light, beside which the black of platinum dust is pale and gray, and laid upon this velvet were the jeweled stars. They were not the twinkling, scintillating beauties of the earthly sky, but minute points so small as to seem dimensionless, yet of dazzling brilliance. Without the interference of the air, their rays met the eye steadily, and much of the effect of comparative distance was lost. All seemed nearer, and there was no hint of familiarity in their arrangement. Like gems thrown upon darkness, they shone in multicolored beauty upon the daring wanderers, who stood in their car as easily as though they were upon their parent earth and gazed upon a sight never before seen by eye of man nor pictured in his imaginings. Through the days of their wonder a thought smote Seaton like a blow from a fist. His eyes leapt to the instrument board, and he exclaimed, Look there, Mort, we're headed almost directly away from the earth, and we must be making billions of miles per second. After we lost consciousness, the attraction of that big dud back there would swing us around, of course, but the bar should have stayed pointed somewhere near the earth as I left it. Do you suppose it could have shifted the gyroscopes? It not only could have, it did, replied Crane. 
turning the bar until it again pointed parallel with the object compass which bore upon the earth. Look at the board. The angle has been changed through nearly half a circumference. We couldn't carry gyroscopes heavy enough to counteract that force. But they were heavier there. Oh, sure, you're right. It's mass, not weight, that counts. But we sure are in one fine large jam now. Instead of being halfway back to Earth, we're... Where are we, anyway? They made a reading on an object compass focused upon the Earth. Seaton's face lengthened as seconds passed. When it had come to rest, both men calculated the distance. What do you make it, Mort? I'm afraid to tell you my result. Forty-six point twenty-seven light centuries, replied Crane, calmly. Right? Right. And the time was 11.32 p.m. of Thursday by the chronometer there. We'll time it again after a while and see how fast we're traveling. It's a good thing you built the ship's chronometers to stand any kind of stress. My watch is a total loss. Yours is too? All of our watches must be broken. We will have to repair them as soon as we get time. Well, let's eat next. No human being can stand my aching void much longer. How about you, Dot? Well, for cat's sake, let's get busy, she mimicked him gaily. Dr. Duquesne's had dinner ready for ages, and we're all dying by inches of hunger. The wanderers, battered, bruised, and sore, seated themselves at a folding table, Seaton keeping a watchful eye upon the bar and upon the course, while enjoying Dorothy's presence to the full. Crane and Margaret talked easily, but at intervals. Save when directly addressed, Duquesne maintained silence. Not the silence of one who knows himself to be an intruder, but the silence of perfect self-sufficiency. The meal over, the girls washed the dishes and busied themselves in the galley. Seaton and Crane made another observation upon the earth, requesting Duquesne to stay out of the engine room, as they called the partially enclosed space surrounding the main instrument board, where were located the object compasses and the mechanism controlling the attractor, about which Duquesne knew nothing. As they rejoined Duquesne in the main compartment, Seaton said, Duquesne, we're nearly five thousand light-years away from the earth, and are getting farther at the rate of about one light-year per minute. I suppose that it would be poor technique to ask how you know. It would, very poor. Our figures are right. The difficulty is that we have only four bars left, enough to stop us and a little to spare, but not nearly enough to get back with, even if we could take a chance on drifting straight that far without being swung off, which, of course, is impossible. That means we must land somewhere and dig some copper, then. Exactly. The first thing to do is to find a place to land. Seaton picked out a distant star in their course and observed it through the spectroscope. Since it was found to contain copper in notable amounts, all agreed that its planets probably also contain copper. Don't know whether we can stop that soon or not, remarked Seaton as he set the levers. But we may as well have something to shoot at. We'd better take our regular twelve-hour tricks, hadn't we, Mart? It's a wonder we got as far as this without striking another snag. I'll take the first trick at the board. Beat it to bed. Not so fast, Dick, argued Crane, as Seaton turned toward the engine room. It's my turn. Flip a nickel, suggested Seaton. Heads, I get it. Crane flipped a coin. Heads it was. And the worn-out party went to their rooms, all save Dorothy, who lingered after the others to bid her lover a more intimate good-night. 
Seated beside him, his arm around her and her head upon his shoulder, Dorothy exclaimed, Oh, Dicky, Dicky, it is wonderful to be with you again. I've lived as many years in the last week as we have covered miles. Seaton kissed her with ardor, then turned her fair face up to his and gazed hungrily at every feature. It sure was awful until we found you, sweetheart girl. Those two days at Wilson's were the worst and longest I ever put in. I could have wrung Martin's cautious old neck. But isn't he a whiz at preparing for trouble? We sure owe him a lot, little dimple lady. Dorothy was silent for a moment, then a smile quirked at one corner of her mouth, and a dimple appeared. Seaton promptly kissed it, whereupon it deepened audaciously. "'What are you thinking about, mischief?' he asked. "'Only of how Martin is going to be paid what we owe him,' she answered teasingly. "'Don't let the debt worry you any.' "'Spill the beans, Reddy,' he commanded, as his arm tightened about her. She stuck out a tiny tip of red tongue at him. "'Don't let Peggy find out he's a millionaire.' "'Why not?' he asked wonderingly. Then he saw her point and laughed. "'You little matchmaker!' "'I don't care. Laugh if you want to. "'Martin's as nice a man as I know, and Peggy's a real darling. "'Don't you let slip a word about Martin's money, that's all.' "'She wouldn't think any less of him, would she?' "'Dick, sometimes you are absolutely dumb. "'It would spoil everything. "'If she knew he was a millionaire, she would be scared to death, "'not of him, of course, "'but because she would think that he would think that she was chasing him.' Then, of course, he would think that she was, see? As it is, she acts perfectly natural, and so does he. Didn't you notice that while we were eating they talked together for at least fifteen minutes about her father's invention and the way they stole the plans in one thing and another? I don't believe he has talked that much to any girl except me the last five years. And he wouldn't talk to me until he knew that I couldn't see any man except you. Much as we like Martin, we've got to admit that about him. He's been chased so much that he's wild. If any other girl he knows had talked to him that long, he would have been off to the North Pole or somewhere the next morning. And the best part of it is that he didn't think anything of it. You think she is domesticating the wild man? Now, Dick, don't be foolish. You know what I mean. Martin is a perfect dear, but... If she knew that he is THE M. Reynolds Crane, everything would be ruined. You know yourself how horribly hard it is to get through his shell to the real Martin underneath. He is lonely and miserable inside, I know, and the right kind of girl, one that would treat him right, would make life heaven for him, and herself too. Yes, and the wrong kind would make it. She would, interrupted Dorothy hastily, but Peggy's the right kind. Wouldn't it be fine to have Martin and Peggy as happy, almost, as you and I are? All right, girlie, I'm with you, he answered, embracing her as though he intended never to let her go. But you'd better go get some sleep. You're all in. Considerably later, when Dorothy had gone, Seaton settled himself for the long vigil. Promptly at the end of the twelve hours, Crane appeared, alert of eye and of bearing. You look fresh as a daisy, Mart, feeling fit. Fit as the proverbial fiddle. I could not have slept any better or longer if I had had a week off. Seven hours and a half is a luxury, you know. 
All wrong, old top. I need eight every night, and I'm going to take about ten this time. Go to it. Twelve if you like. You have earned it. Seaton stumbled to his room and slept as though in a trance for ten hours. Rising, he took his regular morning exercise and went into the saloon. All save Martin were there, but he had eyes only for his sweetheart, who was radiantly beautiful in a dress of deep bronze brown. "'Good morning, Dick,' she hailed him joyously. "'You woke up just in time. We are all starving again, and we're just going to eat without you.' Good morning, everybody. I would like to eat with you, Dottie, but I've got to relieve Martin. How'd it be for you to bring breakfast into the engine room and cheer my solitude, and let Crane eat with the others? Fine. That's once you had a good idea, if you never have another. After the meal, Duquesne, who abhorred idleness with all his vigorous nature, took the watches of the party and went upstairs to the shop which was a completely equipped mechanical laboratory to repair them. Seaton stayed at the board where Dorothy joined him as a matter of course. Crane and Margaret sat down at one of the windows. She told him her story, frankly and fully, shuddering with horror as she recalled the awful, helpless fall during which Perkins had met his end. "'Dick and I have a heavy score to settle with that steel crowd, and with Duquesne,' Crane said slowly. We have no evidence that will hold in law, but some day Duquesne will overreach himself. We could convict him of abduction now, but the penalty for that is too mild for what he has done. Perkins's death was not murder, then. Oh, no, it was purely self-defense. Perkins would have killed him if he could, and he really deserved it. Perkins was a perfect fiend. The doctor, as they call him, is no better, although entirely different. He is so utterly heartless and ruthless so cold and scientific. Do you know him very well? We know all that about him and more. And yet Dorothy says he saved her life? He did, from Perkins, but I still think it was because he didn't want Perkins meddling in his affairs. He seems to me to be the very incarnation of a fixed purpose, to advance himself in the world. That expresses my thoughts exactly. But he slips occasionally, as in this instance, and he will again. He will have to walk very carefully while he is with us. Nothing would please Dick better than an excuse for killing him. And I must admit that I feel very much the same way. Yes, all of us do, and the way he acts proves what a machine he is. He knows just exactly how far to go, and never goes beyond it. They felt the Skylark lurch slightly. Oh, Mart, called Seaton, going to pass that star we were headed for, too fast to stop. I'm giving it a wide berth and picking out another one. There's a big planet a few million miles off in line with the main door, and another one almost dead ahead, that is, straight down. We sure are traveling. Look at that sun flit by. They saw the two planets, one like a small moon, the other like a large star and saw the strange sun increase rapidly in size as the skylark flew on at such a pace that any earthly distance would have been covered as soon as it was begun. So appalling was their velocity that their ship was bathed in the light of that sun for only a short time, then was again surrounded by the indescribable darkness. Their seventy-two-hour flight without a pilot had seemed a miracle, 
Now it seemed entirely possible that they might fly in a straight line for weeks without encountering any obstacle, so vast was the emptiness in comparison with the points of light that punctuated it. Now and then they passed so close to a star that it apparently moved rapidly, but for the most part the silent sentinels stood like distant mountain peaks to the travelers in an express train in the same position for many minutes. Awed by the immensity of the universe, the two at the window were silent, not with the silence of embarrassment, but with that of two friends in the presence of something beyond the reach of words. As they stared out into the infinity, each felt, as never before, the pitiful smallness of even our whole solar system and the utter insignificance of human beings and their works. Silently their minds reached out to each other in mutual understanding. Unconsciously Margaret half shuddered and moved closer to her companion, the movement attracting his attention but not her own. A tender expression came into Crane's steady blue eyes as he looked down at the beautiful young woman at his side. For beautiful she undoubtedly was. Untroubled rest and plentiful food had erased the marks of her imprisonment. Dorothy's deep, manifestly unassumed faith in the ability of Seton and Crane to bring them safely back to earth had quieted her fears, and a complete costume of Dorothy's simple but well-cut clothes, which fitted her perfectly, and in which she looked her best and knew it, had completely restored her self-possession. He quickly glanced away, and again gazed at the stars, but now, in addition to the wonders of space, he saw masses of wavy black hair, high piled upon a queenly head, deep down brown eyes, half veiled by long black lashes, sweet sensitive lips, a firmly rounded but dimpled chin, and a perfectly formed young body. After a time she drew a deep tremulous breath. As he turned, her eyes met his. In their shadowy depths, still troubled by the mystery of the unknowable, he read her very soul, the soul of a real woman. "'I had hoped,' said Margaret slowly, "'to take a long flight above the clouds, but anything like this never entered my mind. How unbelievably great it is, so much vaster than any perception we could get upon earth.' It seems strange that we were ever awed by the sea or the mountains, and yet she paused, with her lip caught between two white teeth, then went on hesitatingly, Doesn't it seem to you, Mr. Crane, that there is something in man as great as all this? Otherwise Dorothy and I would not be sailing here in a wonder like the lark which you and Dick Seaton have made. Since from the first Dorothy had timed her waking hours with those of Seaton, waiting upon him, preparing his meals, and lightening the long hours of his vigils at the board, Margaret took it upon herself to do the same thing for Crane. But often they assembled in the engine-room, and there was much fun and laughter as well as serious talk among the four. Margaret was quickly accepted as a friend and proved a delightful companion. Her wavy, jet-black hair, the only color in the world that could hold its own with Dorothy's auburn glory, framed features self-reliant and strong, yet of womanly softness, and in this genial atmosphere her quick tongue had a delicate wit and a facility of expression that delighted all three. Dorothy, after the manner of southern women, became the hostess of this odd party, as she styled it, 
and unconsciously adopted the attitude of a lady in her own home. Early in their flight, Crane suggested that they should take notes upon the systems of stars through which they were passing. I know very little of astronomy, he said to Seaton, but with our telescope, spectroscope, and other instruments, we should be able to take some data that will be of interest to astronomers. Possibly Miss Spencer would be willing to help us? Sure, Seaton returned readily. We'd be idiots to let a chance like this slide go to it. Margaret was delighted at the opportunity to help. Taking notes is the best thing I do, she cried, and called for a pad and pencil. Stationed at the window, they fell to work in earnest. For several hours, Crane took observations, calculated distances, and dictated notes to Margaret. The stars are wonderfully different, she exclaimed to him once. That planet, I'm sure, has strange and lovely life upon it. See how its color differs from most of the others we have seen so near? It is rosy and soft like a home fire. I'm sure its people are happy. They fell into a long discussion, laughing a little at their fancies. Were these multitudes of worlds peopled as the earth? Could it be that only upon earth had occurred the right combination for the generation of life, so that the rest of the universe was unpeopled? It is unthinkable that they are all uninhabited, mused Crane. There must be life. The beings may not exist in any form with which we are familiar. They may well be fulfilling some purpose in ways so different from ours that we should be unable to understand them at all. Margaret's eyes widened in startled apprehension, but in a moment she shook herself and laughed. But there's no reason to suppose they would be awful, she remarked, and turned with renewed interest to the window. Thus days went by, and the Skylark passed one solar system after another, with a velocity so great that it was impossible to land upon any planet. Margaret's association with Crane, begun as a duty, soon became an intense pleasure for them both. Taking notes, or seated at the board in companionable conversation, or sympathetic silence, they compressed into a few days more real companionship than is ordinarily enjoyed in months. Oftener and oftener, as time went on, Crane found the vision of his dream home floating in his mind as he steered the skylark in her meteoric flight, or as he strapped himself into his narrow bed. Now, however, the central figure of his vision, instead of being an indistinct blur, was clear and sharply defined. And for her part, more and more was Margaret drawn to the quiet and unassuming, but utterly dependable and steadfast young inventor, with his wide knowledge and his keen, incisive mind. Sometimes, when far from any star, the pilot would desert his post and join the others at meals. On one such occasion Seaton asked, How's the book on astronomy, O learned ones? It will be as interesting as Egyptian hieroglyphics, Margaret replied as she opened her notebook and showed him pages of figures and symbols. May I see it, Miss Spencer? asked Duquesne from across a small table, extending his hand. She looked at him, hot hostility in her brown eyes, and he dropped his hand. I beg your pardon, he said with amused irony. After the meal, Seaton and Crane held a short consultation, and the farmer called to the girls, asking them to join in the council of war. There was a moment's silence before Crane said diffidently, We have been talking about Duquesne, Miss Spencer, trying to decide a very important problem. Seaton smiled in spite of himself, 
as the color again deepened in Margaret's face, and Dorothy laughed outright. "'Talk about a red-headed temper. Your hair must be dyed, Peggy.' "'I know I acted like a naughty child,' Margaret said ruefully. "'But he makes me perfectly furious and scares me at the same time. "'A few more remarks like that, "'I beg your pardon of his, and I wouldn't have a thought left in my head.' Seaton, who had opened his mouth, shut it again ludicrously without saying a word, and Margaret gave him a startled glance. "'Now I have said it,' she exclaimed. "'I'm not afraid of him, boys, really. What do you want me to do?' Seaton plunged in. "'What we were trying to get up nerve enough to say is that he'd be a good man on the astronomy job,' Crane added quickly. "'He undoubtedly knows more about it than I do, and it would be a pity to lose the chance of using him.' Besides, Dick and I think it rather dangerous to leave him so much time to himself in which to work up a plan against us. "'He's cooking one right now, I'll bet a hat,' Seaton put in, and Crane added, "'If you are sure that you have no objections, Miss Spencer, we might go below where we can have it dark, and all three of us see what we can make of the stargazing. We are really losing an unusual opportunity.' Margaret hid gallantly any reluctance she might have felt. I wouldn't deserve to be here if I can't work with a doctor and hate him at the same time. Good for you, Peg. You're a regular fellow, Seaton exclaimed. You're a trump. Finally, the enormous velocity of the cruiser was sufficiently reduced to effect a landing. A copper-bearing sun was located, and a course was laid toward its nearest planet. As the vessel approached its goal, a deep undercurrent of excitement kept all the passengers feverishly occupied. They watched the distant globe grow larger, glowing through its atmosphere more and more clearly as a great disk of white light, its outline softened by the air around it. Two satellites were close beside it. Its sun, a great blazing orb, a little nearer than the planet, looked so great and so hot that Margaret became uneasy. Isn't it dangerous to get so close, Dick? We might burn up, mightn't we? Not without an atmosphere, he laughed. Oh, murmured the girl apologetically, I might have known that. Dropping rapidly into the atmosphere of the planet, they measured its density and analyzed it in apparatus installed for that purpose, finding that its composition was very similar to the Earth's air, and that its pressure was not enough greater to be uncomfortable. When, within one thousand feet of the surface, Seaton weighed a five-pound weight upon a spring balance, finding that it weighed five and a half pounds, thus ascertaining that the planet was either somewhat larger than the earth or more dense. The ground was almost hidden by a rank growth of vegetation, but here and there appeared glade-like openings. Seaton glanced at the faces about him. Tense interest marked them all. Dorothy's cheeks were flushed, her eyes shone. She looked at him with awe and pride. "'A strange world, Dorothy,' he said gravely. "'You are not afraid?' "'Not with you,' she answered. I am only thrilled with wonder. Columbus at San Salvador, said Margaret, her dark eyes paying their tribute of admiration. A dark flush mounted swiftly into Seaton's brown face, and he sought to throw most of the burden upon Crane, but catching upon his face also a look of praise, almost tenderness, he quickly turned to the controls. Man the boats, he ordered an imaginary crew, and the Skylark descended rapidly. Landing upon one of the open spaces, they found the ground solid and stepped out. What had appeared to be a glade was in reality a rock, or rather a ledge, of apparently solid metal, 
with scarcely a loose fragment to be seen. At one end of the ledge rose a giant tree, wonderfully symmetrical, but of a peculiar form. Its branches were longer at the top than at the bottom, and it possessed broad, dark green leaves, long thorns, and odd, flexible, shoot-like tendrils. It stood as an outpost of the dense vegetation beyond, totally unlike the forests of earth were these fern-like trees, towering two hundred feet into the air. They were of an intensely vivid green, and stood motionless in the still, hot air of noonday. Not a sign of animal life was to be seen. The whole landscape seemed asleep. The five strangers stood near their vessel, conversing in low tones and enjoying the sensation of solid ground beneath their feet. After a few minutes, Decane remarked, This is undoubtedly a newer planet than ours. I should say that it was in the Carboniferous Age. Aren't those trees like those in the cold measure, Seaton? True as time, Blackie. There probably won't be a human race here for ages unless we bring out some colonists. Seaton kicked at one of the loose lumps of metal questioningly with his heavy shoe, finding that it was as immovable as though it were part of the ledge. Bending over, he found that it required all his great strength to lift it, and he stared at it with an expression of surprise which turned to amazement as he peered closer. Duquesne, look at this! Duquesne studied the metal and was shaken out of his habitual taciturnity. Platinum, by all the little gods! We'll grab some of this while the grabbing's good, announced Seaton, and the few visible lumps were rolled into the car. If we had a pickaxe, we could chop some more off one of those sharp ledges down there. There's an axe in the shop, replied Duquesne. I'll go get it. Go ahead. I'll soon be with you. Keep close together, warned Crane, as the four moved slowly down the slope. This is none too safe, Dick. No, it isn't, Mart. But we've got to see whether we can find some copper, and I would like to get some more of this stuff, too. I don't think it's platinum. I believe that it's X. As they reached the broken projections, Margaret glanced back over her shoulder and screamed. The others saw that her face was white and her eyes wide with horror, and Seaton instinctively drew his pistol as he whirled about, only to check his finger on the trigger and lower his hand. Nothing but explosive bullets, he growled in disgust and in helpless silence, before watched an unspeakably hideous monster slowly appear from behind the skylark. Its four huge squat legs supported a body at least a hundred feet long, pursy and ungainly, at the extremity of a long and sinuous neck. A comparatively small head seemed composed entirely of a cavernous mouth, armed with row upon row of carnivorous teeth. Dorothy gasped with terror, and both girls shrank closer to the two men, who maintained a baffled silence as the huge beast passed his revolting head along the hull of the vessel. "'I dare not shoot, Martin,' Seaton whispered. "'It would wreck the bus. Have you got any solid bullets?' "'No, we must hide behind these small ledges until it goes away,' answered Crane, his eyes upon Margaret's colorless face. "'You two hide behind that one. We'll take this one.' "'Oh, well, it's nothing to worry about anyway. We can kill him as soon as he gets far enough away from the boat,' said Seaton, as, with Dorothy clinging to him, he dropped behind one of the ledges. Margaret, her staring eyes fixed upon the monster, remained standing until Crane touched her gently and drew her down beside him. 
He will go away soon, his even voice assured her. We are in no danger. In spite of their predicament, a feeling of happiness flowed through Crane's whole being as he crouched beside the wall of metal with one arm protectingly around Margaret, and he longed to protect her through life as he was protecting her then. Accustomed as he was to dangerous situations, he felt no fear. He felt only a great tenderness for the girl by his side, who had ceased trembling but was still staring wide-eyed at the monster through a crevice. "'Scared, Peggy?' he whispered. "'Not now, Martin, but if you weren't here I would die of fright.' At this reply his arm tightened involuntarily, but he forced it to relax. "'It will not be long,' he promised himself silently, "'until she is back at home among friends, and then—' There came the crack of a rifle from the Skylark. There was an awful roar from the dinosaur, which was quickly silenced by a stream of machine-gun bullets. "'Blackie's on the job. Let's go,' cried Seaton, and they raced up the slope. Making a detour to avoid the writhing and mutilated mass, they plunged through the opening door. Duquesne shut it behind them, and in overwhelming relief the adventurers huddled together, as from the wilderness without there arose an appalling tumult. The scene, so quiet a few moments before, was instantly changed. The trees, the swamp, and the air seemed filled with monsters so hideous as to stagger the imagination. Winged lizards of prodigious size hurtled through the air, plunging to death against the armored hull. Indescribable flying monsters, with feathers like birds, but with the fangs of tigers, attacked viciously. Dorothy screamed and started back, as a scorpion-like thing with a body ten feet in length leapt at the window in front of her, its terrible sting spraying the glass with venom. As it fell to the ground, a huge spider, if an eight-legged creature with spines instead of hair, many-faceted eyes, and a bloated globular body weighing hundreds of pounds, may be called a spider, leapt upon it, and mighty mandibles against poisonous sting, the furious battle raged. Several twelve-foot cockroaches climbed nimbly across the fallen timber of the morass and began feeding voraciously upon the body of the dead dinosaur, only to be driven away by another animal, which all three men recognized instantly as that king of all prehistoric creatures, the saber-toothed tiger. This newcomer, a tawny beast towering fifteen feet high at the shoulder, had a mouth disproportionate even to his great size a mouth armed with four great tiger teeth more than three feet in length. He had barely begun his meal, however, when he was challenged by another nightmare, a something apparently halfway between a dinosaur and a crocodile. At the first note the tiger charged, clawing, striking, rending each other with their terrible teeth, a veritable avalanche of bloodthirsty rage. The combatants stormed up and down the little island, but the fighters were rudely interrupted, and the earthly visitors discovered that in this primitive world it was not only animal life that was dangerous. The great tree standing on the farther edge of the island suddenly bent over, lashing out like a snake and grasping both. It transfixed them with terrible thorns, which were now seen to be armed with needle-points and to possess barbs like fish-hooks. It ripped at them with the long branches, which were veritable spears. The broad leaves, armed with revolting sucking discs, 
closed about the two animals while the long slender twigs each of which was now seen to have an eye at its extremity waved about watching each movement of the captives from a safe distance if the struggle between the two animals had been awful this was titanic the air was torn by the roars of the reptile the screams of the great cat and the shrieks of the tree the very ground rocked with the ferocity of the conflict there could be but one result soon the tree having absorbed the two gladiators resumed its upright position in all its beauty the members of the little group stared at each other sick at heart this is no place to start a copper mine i think we'd better beat it remarked seaton presently wiping drops of perspiration from his forehead i think so acquiesced crane we found air and earth-like conditions here we probably will elsewhere are you all right dotty asked seaton all right dicky she replied the color flowing back into her cheeks it scared me stiff and i think i have a lot of white hairs right now but i wouldn't have missed it for anything she paused an instant and continued dick there must be a queer streak of brutality in me but would you mind blowing up that frightful tree i wouldn't mind its nature if it were ugly but look at it it's so deceptively beautiful you wouldn't think it had the disposition of a fiend would you a general laugh relieved the nervous tension and Seaton stepped impulsively towards Duquesne with his hand outstretched. "'You've squared your account, Blackie. Say the word and the war is all off.' Duquesne ignored the hand and glanced coldly at the group of eager, friendly faces. "'Don't be sentimental,' he remarked evenly as he turned away to his room. "'Emotional scenes pain me. I gave my word to act as one of the party.' "'Well, may I be kicked to death by little red spiders!' exclaimed Seaton, dumbfounded as the other disappeared. He ain't a man, he's a fish. He's a machine. I always thought so, and now I know it, stated Margaret, and the others nodded agreement. Well, we'll sure pull his cork as soon as we get back, snapped Seaton. He asked for it, and we'll give him both barrels. I know I acted the fool out there, Margaret apologized, flushing hotly and looking at Crane. I don't know what made me act so stupid. I used to have a little nerve. "'You were a regular little brick, Peg,' Seaton returned instantly. "'Both you girls are all to the good, the right kind to have along in ticklish places.' Crane held out his steady hand and took Margaret's in a warm clasp. "'For a girl in your weakened condition, you were wonderful. You have no reason to reproach yourself.' Tears filled the dark eyes, but were held back bravely as she held her head erect and returned the pressure of his hand. "'Just so you don't leave me behind next time,' she returned lightly, and the last word concerning the incident had been said. Seaton applied the power, and soon they were approaching another planet, which was surrounded by a dense fog. Descending slowly, they found it to be a mass of boiling hot steam and rank vapors under enormous pressure. The next planet they found to have a clear atmosphere, but the ground had a peculiar barren look, and analysis of the gaseous envelope proved it to be composed almost entirely of chlorine. No life of an earthly type could be possible upon such a world, and a search for copper, even with the suits and helmets, would probably be fruitless if not impossible. Well, remarked Seaton, as they were again in space, we've got enough copper to visit several more worlds, several more solar systems, if necessary, 
But there's a nice, hopeful-looking planet right in front of us. It may be the one we're looking for. Arrived in the belt of atmosphere, they tested it as before and found it satisfactory. End of chapter 11